Grab a Bible, you're going to need a Bible. Uh, I say that every week. I'll always say that, and I'll always say that I'll always say that every week. You're going to need a Bible. There's Bibles on the back, in the back. You can use any Bible you bring. I use the SV. Sometimes I'll explain why, in particular, one over the other. But uh, the one that, the, in translation that's the best is the one that you will read. So uh, I care most that you're actually reading the Word. But there's Bibles back there. If you want one, keep, take it with you. Keep it. You don't have to put it back. We have tons of them. Give it away. Uh, come every week and get one to give away. It doesn't matter to me. I'll buy more. That's the most important thing on the uh, budget line for me is God's Word. So, 26th book, which is Daniel. That's where we're going to go. About 13 from the New Testament. So shoot for close to the middle of your book and then probably go to the right a little bit. Uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you'll find it. We're going to be in chapter 5, quickly recapping the story. So we're following the story of God. We've been doing this for over a year now. And uh, you can go back. The cool part about that is it's his story, not mine. It's right here. It's written down. So you can go right back and read it. But in the beginning, God was before all things. God created all things. God created things perfect. He made Adam and Eve, who were both perfect, uh, made in his image. But they chose, instead of submission and worship in his kingdom, to build their own kingdom for their own glory, and as a result, sin and death entered the world. Uh, but God promised Eve, even in that moment, that one of her children, a child from her body, a seed from her, uh, would uh, restore, would right the wrong, would, would bring death to defeat uh, and restore and give back life. And so we've been following that seed, that storyline through this entire book. All of that happens in the first three chapters. So as you move through the book, you see that seed, that, that, that promised child, we're following it as it goes from descendant to descendant to descendant until it comes to Noah. And there's a great flood, but he preserves that seed through the family of Noah. On the other side of the flood, uh, as Noah's family begins to grow, that seed continues to pass through generation after generation until we come to Abraham. And then Abraham has Isaac, and the seed passes to Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob and the seed passes to Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons have their own families, and those families grow and grow and grow until they become tribes of people. But they all stay together, and because their numbers grow so big, they turn into a nation, and we call that nation Israel, correct? Yeah, because Jacob, the father of them, all his name was changed to Israel. So... That nation then begins to stay together and finds themselves enslaved in Egypt. God promises to deliver them to a land that he promised to their father Abraham. And so he sends who? Who does he send to Egypt? Moses. Come on, this is it. we work in this thing, man. Y'all got to come on. He sends Moses. And so Moses uh, brings the people out and got by God's hand. You can go read all the stories in Exodus. Brings them out into the wilderness, into Sinai, which is in the Arabian desert, a mountain there. And God speaks to the people personally, and he gives them what? The law, his word. He gives them the Torah, which we call the law. It's the word of God. He gives it to them personally. And then he guides them into this land that he promised them with, with, with through Joshua. All right, And the seed is continuing, but it's a big family now. So we don't know who it's coming through just at the moment, but we're watching the family and as this big, huge family becomes a nation in this land, they have one responsibility, and that's to love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, strength, and love each other as themselves, love the neighbors as themselves, know his word, but, but they don't do that. Instead, they begin to worship other gods that we can do. So God raises up these judges who help guide and direct them, almost like a president kind of thing. 
And then that sometimes they go the right way back to God, and then sometimes they flip back over. And so there's this cycle that goes on. And God raises up kings and put kings in charge of them. And the kings start doing the same thing. They start spinning the country into rebellion against God and then redeeming them, leading them back to God. And on and on this goes uh, until the nation itself splits in half in a civil war. And the northern half of the nation... In 722 B.C., historical fact, God has had it and brings Assyria, the first, well, maybe Egypt, but after Egypt, Assyria will be the first world power. God brings Assyria against the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and destroys them and erases them and removes them. And it leaves only the southern kingdom, which is pretty much only Jerusalem and a small area around it. And they make it a handful more years but by 586 B.C., Assyria has fallen to Babylon, and Babylon is now the world power. And Babylon comes in at God's hand and drags them off, the southern kingdom, into slavery in 586 B.C. Historical fact, it occurred. You can look it up. Nobody denies that. Among those who were drug off in 586 B.C., the three boys we talked about last week, and then uh, this week uh, we'll continue to look, but Daniel is one of those, Okay. Jeremiah is in left behind at the same time period. He's in Jerusalem and he's writing his book. Ezekiel, same time period. He was a slave that was drug off. He is in Babylon and he's writing. And Daniel is also writing, who's also a slave at the same time. But Daniel's in the palace with the king. Okay, so that brings us to where we are. And we're moving quick. We'll only be in Daniel for another week and then we'll move right on. Because we're following the story of God. We're not trying to hit everything. So this week is going to be a familiar story. We're going to read a pretty good bit in his word, so you're going to need a copy, believe me. So, I tried for something creative, but the obvious really just says it. The writing on the wall. That's really, that's really what it is. So, what does it mean when we use that phrase? Think about it just a second. Regardless of faith, I don't care if a person doesn't believe in God at all. What do you think about, what do, what do you think about when you use that phrase? Today we're going to look at Daniel with a new king. And you're going to see a clear distinction between the two, what they value, who they worship, their reputation, and yeah, what God wrote on the wall. So look at chapter 5. Let me read a couple of verses. Verse 16. We'll start and then we'll come back. It says, I, Belshazzar, is, is who's speaking, king of Babylon, have heard that you, Daniel, can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around your neck and be the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for you, bro. I'll stick that in there. And give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing of the king and make known to him the interpretation. Lord, your word is amazing, incredible, awesome, and will always be your word. Uh, thousands of years before there was a day, Wiley, it was your word. And man, if your creation continues... A thousand years after me, it'll be your word. In fact, whether your creation continues or not, your word is eternal. It will always be your word. Don't let me put mine in your way. You, you say what you want. Let us walk out of here excited about what the book in our hand says and not what some preacher said on a stage. I have no intention of doing that. I love you, Lord. May I ask you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if any of y'all been in another country, but sometimes it can be complicated communicating, and depending on how separated that country is from the English language, it can be real complicated. I remember going to West Africa once, Molly was there, and there was an elderly gentleman who was with us, and uh, 
We sat down in a restaurant that we went to several times because it was about the only one there, and nobody was preparing us food, and we weren't sure what was safe to eat, but we knew that restaurant was. So we kept going back there to eat. And this older guy, every time we would sit down, would ask for a Coke Zero. And every time, the server had no clue what, what he was He only spoke Arabic. They didn't know what he was saying. So he would, they would, they figured the Coke half enough to say Coke Light, which is Diet Coke. Coke Light. You know, and he would be like, Coke Zero. He'd be like, Coke Light. He'd be like, Jim, they, they, they don't have it, bro. If they don't, or they don't know what you're saying. So he would say, Coke Zero, like like they don't understand. You know, I'm like, dude, saying it slower in the same language doesn't help anything. They're not stupid. They don't know. You know. So anyway, it, it almost Molly and I both were somewhere between ready to choke him and entertained by how ridiculous he was being. So, uh, but it can be complicated. It can be difficult. And if you don't know the language, it's hard. But even if you have people who translate, sometimes that can be hard. And I don't know if you've ever spoke to a translator, but that can be difficult too, especially. If you're prone to use idioms or things like that, cat got your tongue. You know, that didn't translate, obviously. People look at you like, what are you talking about? We're we're old school. You know, it's raining cats and dogs. Man, go down a whole list. You know, all of them don't quit your day job. <laughs> you know what I mean? Things like that don't translate well when you translate. And the writing on the wall has largely become one of those things, like an idiom. But it's not. It's a historical event that occurred. It is a threat. And it predates the English language by maybe a thousand years. So it, it is not an idiom. Here's the point. I always put a one point on your sheet there. Who and how we worship will determine the writing on the wall for all of us. Real simple. Who and how we worship will determine the writing on the wall for all of us. So quick, Nebuchadnezzar, you can go back and read chapter 4. I'm not going to read it. Nebuchadnezzar was king that conquered and did all these things we've talked about. Daniel was stayed close to Nebuchadnezzar. They became good friends. You can read this in your own time, the first four chapters of the book. You see this wrestle with Nebuchadnezzar trying to determine who Daniel is and who God is. But by chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar knows he becomes a believer. I'm firmly convinced of that. His testimony is handwritten by himself there. So you read it. You tell me. I'm pretty certain he's a believer. And as a result, he changes the kingdom of Babylon a good bit. Babylon becomes a place where the name of the God of Israel is well known. And to some degree, at least well respected. His decrees are made to honor him. He is... Uh, reigns and rules for 43 years. He died in 562 B.C. Actual man who really lived. Not a funny story. It's not a real guy. In 562, he dies. Okay? King Belshazzar, look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of a thousand. You can already tell this character is totally different. Party, extravagance, buffoonery, I mean, he is a totally different person. He gets a thousand of the people that he thinks are important to party with and get drunk in front of. So what ends up happening was the rule, after Nebuchadnezzar dies, the rule goes to Nebuchadnezzar's son. All right? Nebuchadnezzar's son is murdered only two years later. All right? And then the rule goes to a son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar, who actually reigns for six years. But then he hands it off to his son. And that guy is murdered only two months later by Nebuchadnezzar's other son-in-law. Uh, Nabonidus is the guy's name. 
Alright, and Nabonidus reigns for 17 years. This guy is something else. He fully restores the pagan worship. He has this idea, he and his side of the family has this idea that Babylon was great when it was pagan and it's time to go back. And he takes it back to this whole moon god worship and all of these things. And at the same time, God is moving and God has raised up Persia and Media, two nations. And Persia has begun to conquer the world. And Persia's at war with Babylon now. Ultimately, Persia will conquer Babylon. But while Persia's at war with Babylon and Nabonidus is fighting, he makes Belshazzar, his son, king over Babylon's city. So the capital city. Belshazzar is in charge of while Nabonidus is doing his thing. What you didn't hear me say was Daniel. Daniel is long forgotten. Long forgotten. So is God. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, what does that mean? He's drunk. Ill he's buzzed when the wine has got a hold of him. He commanded that the vessels of the gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, says father, that's just a general term, grandfather, it will apply to all people. His grandfather, in this case, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem and were, had brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Uh, then they brought in the gold vessels, that's the instant burners, bowls, things that you can go back and read it in the Old Testament, back in uh, the Torah, the first five books, and especially in Exodus, where God designed these things to be used in his temple for worship. When Babylon conquered Israel, apparently Nebuchadnezzar brought a lot of those gold items back and stored them somewhere. And now this guy wants them to come out and be used for a party. Not just any kind of party, but wives and concubines and all that stuff. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and irons and wood and stone. While he's having this party now, the city is under attack. And then you'll, you'll get that in a second. He doesn't know this because, or that he doesn't care because their walls are legendary. We'll come to that in a minute. And maybe he doesn't think that anybody will ever get in. Either way, he doesn't care. It's party time. You know what? Dad's out fighting Persia wherever, and we're safe in here, and they can come surround these walls and do anything they want, and we're safe in here. Apparently, he hasn't read his Bible, doesn't know about Jericho, you know, that we read about once upon a time. But anyway, and for a side note, by the way, it's the wall where the curse gets written. Just saying. Look at verse 5. Immediately in this moment, at that second... The fingers of a human hand, get the picture, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. So it's in full view. It's almost like saying in front of a spotlight. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Maybe it's just a hand or maybe somebody's standing there writing and all he sees is the hand and the finger. And I don't know. But he clearly sees a hand and a finger writing. The word palace there, look at verse 5 where it says the king's palace. That's the same word in, in verse 3 that's translated temple twice. Same word. This finger is not just writing on a wall. He's defiling this king's temple in a sense. Because what, what Belshazzar has done is by taking these tools... They were designed for worshiping God's temple and bringing them into his own palace. You could say he's turned his own place into a temple. It's not that those things were mystical or magical. It's not that. It's that God identified those things to be used for his worship in his temple, thereby making them holy. 
set apart. You don't go home and eat out of this. This is used for my worship. This is holy. It's set apart. And he's taking it now and making it common and ordinary and using them for his own passion, his own fun, and, and in some form of mocking worship to his own gods. Now, what does that say about the places where we use what God has determined for his worship? Now, think about this. The tools for his temple. If you're a believer in this room, your body is the temple of God. Plain black and white. So the, the tools, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, all those kind of things. What does it say about the way we use it? Do we make his things ordinary and common? I do. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Do we use them for our own temples? Like our own passions, so we can celebrate our own passions with them? You know, that's the battle, right? Look at verse 6. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way as these knocked together. Literally, it says the joints of his legs gave way. So his legs literally buckle and he drops in, in terror. The king calls loudly or shouts. That's like a terrified shout. Bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. Bring out every magician you've got here. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me his interpretation will be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around his neck and be third in the kingdom why third? Because his dad, Nabonidus, is still king. He's out fighting. He's number two because he's ruler over the city right now, so this would be number three. What's cool about that is, if this was a made-up story, there would have been a chance for a, a mistake, but it's not. If he said to be number one in the kingdom, he'd be oh, he didn't have the right to give that authority because Nabonidus was king. But no, it's a true story. It happened. It occurred. He would have been number three. Look at verse 8. We're going to read a chunk here really quick to get the story down. Uh, then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing made known to the king uh, and, and tell him. They couldn't read it or tell him what it means. Verse 9, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed. His lords are perplexed. Everybody's confused. It's a crazy moment. What's going on? The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall. And the queen declared, O king. Now, this queen, by the way, is probably his dad's queen. Nabonidus, because she's not present partying away and doing her thing, and she's clearly older because she knows something here. O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm uh, you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. Now, when I read this, you know this woman is a pagan woman who don't follow the Lord, but listen to what she says about Daniel. This, this is amazing the way think of Daniel's character as she describes him right here there's a man in your kingdom who is in him is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father light talking about Nebuchadnezzar light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him and King Nebuchadnezzar your father your father the king redundant statement your grandfather made him chief of the magi magicians, magi for short, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers. That's back in chapter 2. You can read it in your own time. We already mentioned it last week, verse 12. Because of excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. You can read that in your own time. Now let Daniel be called, and he'll show you the interpretation. He'll tell you. Go get this man. Talk about a reputation. Why is this guy in a hole somewhere? You know what I'm saying? This is the dude you want right close to you. So, 
Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You're that Daniel, right? This is, I mean, I imagine that's my own opinion here now. But that tells you Daniel probably looked rough. Like, that Daniel? That can do all that? Why do you look like you look? Now, maybe I'm drawing a conclusion, but that's because the language kind of drew that Daniel? One of the exiles of Judah, whom the king's, uh, the king, my father, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, brought from Judah. Uh, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they, they cannot show the interpretation of the matter, but I've heard that you can give the interpretation, solve the problem. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you'll be clothed purple and have a gold chain around your neck and be third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and your reward be for another. That is very, very, very sarcastic, angry, annoyed language. Give your stuff to some. I don't want your junk, dude. I don't want nothing to do with this. I'm mad, I know, but this is kind of the heart of it all. Give your junk to somebody else. Give your gold to somebody else. Give your royalty to somebody else. I don't want none of it, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what that says. I'll tell you exactly what that says. Uh, Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he would, he killed. Whomever he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. He had absolute power. Verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his throne. You can read this in the previous chapter. He's talking about how Nebuchadnezzar got super proud of what he'd accomplished and God totally humbled him. Look at verse 22. He says, And you, you his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You know, you knew all of this. And still you are just as arrogant as he was. But in fact, you've gone beyond that. Verse 23, you lifted yourself up against the Lord. Now, it's really easy for us to judge that and say, we would never do anything. I'm never going to stand up and say, I curse you, God. I'll fight God. Let's go. You're, you're nothing. It's not so much that. It's just saying he isn't there. Look at Judah. They're our slaves. They've been our slaves for 70 years. He's not there. In fact, I'll prove he's not there. Bring his holy stuff in here and, and we'll have a little party. The prostitutes can drink out of it. You know, it's that kind of thing. And it's an arrogant thing. I control what goes on. I control what happens here. Not this God, because where is he? If he controlled what happened here, these Jews would be free. They, I control these Jews. You see what I'm saying? It's really easy to slip into this place. Now, this dude's a jerk, but I'm just saying, it's really easy to slip into this place. And he said, and the vessels of the house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines, you've drunk from them, and you praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, who don't see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Hey, let's not forget something. All he's got to do is shank the air out of the room. 
It's over. You realize how easy it would be for God to put an end to all this? Cut off the oxygen. You know, I'm not trying to be freaky, I'm just saying. Verse 24. Then, at that point, from God's hand presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was described. So who was this hand? Uh, did God write it himself? Was it an angel? Well, there's only two times in the Bible when God writes, and it literally says God writes himself. And both times, oddly enough, are fingers. Both times. And you don't have to turn to these. You can just note them. Exodus 31, verse 18. When he gave to Moses uh, the Ten Commandments, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now, we always think of that figuratively speaking, and maybe it was, or maybe he actually used his finger and wrote it. John chapter 8 in the New Testament. Jesus, who I firmly wanted to present entirely, know to be God. So you may say, well, that's Jesus, not God. Wrong. No, same person. John 8, verse 6. This they said to test uh, Jesus. They brought the, the woman who was caught in adultery and said, should we stone her or set her free? And he said that they may have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. What did he write? Who cares? Everybody wants to fight about that. If he wanted us to know, it would say, is the point that he's writing that I'm showing you at this moment. So maybe... Am I saying it's, it's, it's God writing on the wall? I believe so. I believe perhaps it is even the Son of God writing on the wall. Uh, I, it's a human hand. There's a lot. That's the way I envision it. Am I right? Who knows? Am I wrong? Who knows? It's okay. It's not that big a deal. But that's what I think. And you don't let sin, don't let the word sent. God sent the hand. Don't let that confuse you because for God so loved the world that he what? Sent his son. Okay, so that, that's, not a, that's not a big deal. Look at verse 25. Regardless of whether it's just a floating hand or whether God's presence himself is there, which is what I believe, verse 25, this is the writing that was inscribed. This is what it says. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. This is the interpretation of the map. This is what it means. Mene, the word God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Mene means to number. He says it twice. Numbered. Numbered. Tekel is from the word shekel, which is the word that Israel uses for money. It's a financial term, but it means to weigh something. To weigh something. And parson means to split, divide. Um... And it sounds a lot like the Persian word in Aramaic. So numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And it's interesting that God uses money, at least money terms, to pronounce his judgment on it. Because what are they doing? They're worshiping gods of gold and silver and precious metals and all that kind of thing. First Samuel chapter 2, when Hannah's praying, she says in verse 2, years and years and years, hundreds of years before this moment we're reading, 
There's none holy like the Lord, for there's none beside you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him what actions are weighed. The writing on the wall for Belshazzar. Weighed and found on him. You ain't got enough, bro. Let me translate. Let me give you an American idiom. You're writing checks you can't cash. You know what I'm saying? Your mouth is writing checks that you can't cash. Well, I have evaluated you. You're not enough. You're short. You're short, bro. Look at, uh, and by the way, what does that say about Daniel's character versus this king's character? And remember, Daniel was being evaluated by a pagan woman and being described that way that he was. Look at verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. Same night. And Darius the Mede received, because God is in control of everything, the kingdom being about 62 years old. So while Nabonidus is battling Persia elsewhere, Media, who's in union with Persia, has surrounded Babylon and has been besieging the capital and ultimately gets in and kills Belshazzar. Now, if people paid attention to the word of God, they would have seen this. This is the amazing thing about God's word. It's easy for us to flip a few pages back and say, okay, yeah, it says that over here. Yeah, it says that over here. Never forget, every time you turn pages, you're spanning time. You're spanning time. So when you back up a few books, you back up maybe 200 years. So, for instance, Jeremiah wrote in chapter 51, this will be up there, you can just make a note, This is years before they even went into exile. Before they even went into exile, Jeremiah wrote in verse 11, Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the king of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it for the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Same language, but he goes on, skip down to verse 39. He says, while they're inflamed, drunk, I will prepare them a feast. I'll make them drunk and they'll become married and then they'll sleep a perpetual sleep and not they'll die. I'll bring them down like lambs to the slaughter. Verse 41, how Babylon is taken, the praise of the whole earth sees, how Babylon has become a horror. Verse 57, God says, I will make them drunk. Her officials and her wise men, her governors, her commanders, and her warriors, and they'll sleep a perpetual sleep. They'll die. Look, that's, that's forever before this night. Man, that was you prophecy gets freaky when it's that detailed, right? Okay, let's back up. That's not convincing. A hundred and fifty years before. A hundred and fifty-ish years before. Isaiah wrote in chapter 13, verse 17. Listen to me. A hundred and fifty plus years before. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, Babylon, who have no regard for silver and delight gold that you can't be bought. And Babylon, verse 19 says, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor, and the pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Those are specific. The Medes and Babylon, I mean, those are specific things. How did he know that? It happened. In fact, this is a very historical event. We know the date. One historian wrote this. Listen, one, I'm almost done. One historian wrote this. According to Herodotus, the city was approximately, talking about Babylon, 
14 miles square with the Euphrates River bisecting it north to south. Two sets of walls, inner and outer, protected the city. The walls were said to be 350 feet high and 87 feet thick. Get your brain around how massive that is, okay? On the walls were some 250 watchtowers that rose 100 feet higher than the wall itself. The outside wall had a deep water moat that was 30 feet wide on the other side of it. So it's easy to see why this guy thought things were cool. In fact, provisions were stored supposedly sufficient for 20 years of siege. So they could shut up the doors for 20 years and never be bothered. On October 12th, 539 B.C., exact date, October 12th, 539 B.C., the Medes dug a canal and diverted the water of the Euphrates that flowed under the city and entered the city on a dry channel walking under the walls. While this guy's partying his tail off, thinking everything is great, the city is falling down around him. And before we leave this to the history books, let's not forget that there's an end still to come. Maybe like a lot like Babylon. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, talking about the future. He said, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, hey, it's cool, man. There's peace. There's security. Let's drink it up. Where's God? There ain't no God. God was there. He'd be, there wouldn't be, you know, babies wouldn't die. There would, whatever the stories are you hear. If God was here, things wouldn't be so bad. Things wouldn't be so difficult. There's no God. Might as well get drunk, drink, do your thing. It's all good. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So, God will judge. There's a wall. There's a wall for all of us. And the only question is this. When you've been weighed, what will God say? What's he going to see? Who and how we worship will determine the writing on the wall for all of us. Believer, if you're a believer in the room, how you worship matters. If you're an unbeliever in the room, or if you haven't become a Christian, given your life to Christ, then who you worship matters. You're either building and celebrating your own kingdom, or you surrendered yourself to build his. One of the two. So what's the writing on the wall? What is? I can tell you what's on my wall with absolute certainty. I know for a fact what's written on my wall. Paid. Sinless? Nope. Nope. Definitely still sin. That's paid. Paid. That's what's on my wall. Because Christ was weighed in my place. That's what the cross is, guys. Christ was weighed. I can promise you if Dave Wiley's weighed right now as a pastor planting a church in Tempe, Arizona, I'm going, damn. Right now. But Christ was weighed. He paid in full on the cross. That's where my faith is. Colossians 2, and, and, and this, this is it right here. Colossians 2, verse 13. Paul said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, un uncircumcision. But God made alive. He made us alive together with him. I, I was dead. Dave was dead. But you made, he made me alive. Having forgiven us of our sins. Watch this. Canceling the record of death that stood against us with its demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Every sin in my life is nailed on that cross on his body. He paid for every one of them. Every one of them. So when I stand before him, 
I don't have to wonder, what's he going to find on that wall? I'm just going to say, the cross is paid. So it's time to look at your wall. Not being funny, I'm, I'm not trying to be weird, I'm being serious. It's time to ask God what's written there. If it doesn't say paid in full, let's fix that right now. Like now is the time to, to put it into that. Because either, either the cross is accountable or you are. One way or the other. One way or the other. Either the cross is accountable or you are. But I can tell you the cross is for you. I've said it a bunch of times. You'll hear me say it a bunch of times. John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Think about that. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But you can't read those things without the last line. Do you believe this? You have to respond. I believe in Jesus. I'll never be enough. I know that. But the cross I trust was enough. The grave has been beaten. I trust that that's enough. That's the gospel. Why don't you guys stand up with me and uh, we're going to sing one more song. If you want to come talk to me, come on, man. You can come down here and talk right now. We can talk after church. We can talk anytime you want. Uh, I want you to take the time to process the gospel. Think about what's on your wall. Not, not trying to be funny. Think about it. And believe. listen, if you're a believer here, how you live matters, man. The things in your life that are you, God gave you to use for his worship are not common. They're unique. You see, you understand, you know him. They're not common. You know what I'm saying? Let me pray. Lord, your word is amazing. I say it every week. I mean it every week. I'll say it every day for the entirety of my life and the eternity beyond. Thank you for giving it to us. Not, not just me, all of us. Thank you that we have your word. God, I pray today that if anybody uh, has not spoken to you about putting their faith in you, let them do it today. They don't need to come to me. They don't need to repeat a phrase, Lord. Just burden their heart to cry out to you and say, Jesus, I trust you. I'm tired of trusting myself. I'm tired of my own plans. I'm tired of my own goals. You can have me. You can do whatever you want. I trust you. Forgive me. Guide me. Lead me. Direct me. Uh, Lord, restore those of us who struggle. Guard our hearts. Help us be more faithful to follow you and to guard the tools you've given us for your worship. We love you and we ask these things.